Hello everyone, I will spare you the usual long-winded introduction I had on episodes 1, 2, and 3 of the Surviving Crisis podcasts. I do wish to thank the Clerkship Directors of Internal Medicine Council for their encouragement for this and other podcast projects, but please be aware that none of the content in this, prior, or future podcasts represents the opinions or policies of the Clerkship Directors of Internal Medicine or the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine. I do wish to caution listeners to this, the fourth episode of the Surviving Crisis series, that it contains one graphic image that may be disturbing to you, and that the interview you will hear touches upon a topic that many people find difficult to discuss, and that is suicide. Finally, if you are having thoughts of suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. You can find a list of additional resources at speakingofsuicide.com backslash resources. I would also like to refer everyone to an excellent opinion piece by Pamela Morris in the March 25th edition of the New York Times, written about her teenage daughter's suicide. So Sheila, could you introduce yourself and uh, tell me where you grew up, went to college, and where your career has taken you since then, and what and where your position is now? Well, I'm Sheila Costa. Um, I was raised in southeastern Virginia, although my family is from Bangladesh. I was born there, came over as very little, like I was 18 months. Um, I spent all of my life in southeastern Virginia, including college. I went to the College of William and Mary um, and graduated in 97 um, and was looking for a job. I had an English degree in 97. It was not a very good market, so I was pretty much interested in any kind of job I could find. Um, The Alliance, which didn't exist at that point, um, but was sort of in its incipient stages, was looking for a communications assistant. At that point, it was really APM um, in in a brand new office. Um, They had just moved out from the AAMC, and um, they had brought CDIM and ASP along with them. And they were looking for a communications assistant, and it seemed like a really good fit. And almost 24 years later, um, it'll, yeah, I start my 24th year in June. Um, that's been my career, actually. I've held a bunch of different positions at the Alliance. Um, I've served as communications manager, as the director of educational programs, the director of strategic planning, um, the external support manager, the governance manager. My current title, however, is the senior director of special projects, which includes um, governance, overseeing marketing communications, uh, external support, and then supporting the uh, executive office function. Since some of our listeners are not totally savvy to what the Alliance is, if you could just uh, define the Alliance. 
<laughs> Sorry, of course. The Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine is a consortium of five medical organizations. Uh, it's a, roughly about 10,000 members, and we represent faculty and staff in departments of internal medicine at medical schools and the teaching and teaching hospitals in the United States. Um, it's a great organization. Yeah, it is amazing that you've been there 24 years because I have great memories of meeting you in 2002, uh, 2000, 2001, and the, I went to the, no, it was the spring of 2002 because it was the meeting after September 11th, 2001. And uh, I remember meeting you there. I think you were the, the head of the director of meetings. So you kind yes. of were keeping track of all of us, <laughs> which was not an easy job, I'm sure. So Sheila, could you tell me about your family a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm the oldest of two daughters. Uh, my dad is a retired gastroenterologist. My mom was a um, stay-at-home mom. I have now <laughs> many, many aunts and uncles who have immigrated to the country, but when I was a little girl, we didn't really have um, an extended family in this country. So um, we sort of made our own community. The area that I grew up in actually had a fairly high number of people from Bangladesh in it. And so we sort of created our own extended uh, range of aunts and uncles and cousins. And that was, it was a fun way to grow up for sure. And was, did your father redo his residency and fellowship when he came to the United States? He did um, one year of like, like redo of the residency and then, um, and he did that, it had a different name of course, but it's now Seton Hall. Um, and then he did two years of GI fellowship at the University of Maryland. So, so we moved around a little bit, but then when my parents were sort of trying to decide, well, where do they want to raise their daughters? You know, where do they really want to settle down? Uh, they picked that area of Southeastern Virginia for two reasons, they told me. Although the second uh, place, or like the second contender was Corpus Christi. Although I can't quite imagine what life would have been like for me in Corpus Christi. But they, they went to Southeastern Virginia because of the Bangladeshi community that was there, but also because of the proximity of so many um, excellent uh, universities, right? My parents never told me that they really wanted me to go to William & Mary. Um, I didn't find that out until after I was accepted. It was probably the most um, repressed sort of thing that they have ever done. My parents have never hesitated to tell me <laughs> what they think I ought to do. Uh, they continue, or my, my dad continues to this day, but um, but they really they, they really didn't push me. Why William and Mary? For me, um, yeah. I don't know. I. I went to really small Catholic schools growing up. My family is um, Roman Catholic. I, um, I believe in everything and nothing at the same time, um, which I think is a very frequent product of Catholic school education. But, um, but I, I liked the smaller sort of atmosphere. At the time, um, I had, when, I, when I entered college, my intention was to become a doctor and um, while William Mary wasn't super strong in science, it had a really solid sort of biology and chemistry program. Um, that ambition to go to medical school lasted until 
I failed organic chemistry for the second time and I took the MCATs and my scores were so bad that I was just like, okay, it's, it's time to think about something else. Um, and tell me a little bit about your sister. Sure. My sister was two and a half years younger than me. Um, we were best friends and arch enemies, depending on what day of the week it was. Um, we were really, always really close. I think, you know, her adolescence was a bit rocky, um, <laughs> as everybody's is. But um, because of the way um, the school years fell out and just some, some weird things about um, the schools we went to, while we were two and a half years apart, we were almost, I think it was four years apart in school. No, it was three years in school. And so um, we only overlapped in high school for one year, but it was quite possibly the worst of my high school years. Um, we were very different as we got older until you got to know us. And then it was easy to see the similarities. She was a very vibrant, social, energetic, in-your-face in kind of person. And particularly in my adolescence and early young adulthood, I was very shy, very quiet, very introverted. Um, I came to the Alliance that way and um, have turned into something halfway between an introvert and an extrovert. I'm not sure what I am anymore. <laughs> sort of describe what your sister was like. Um, what are some of your clearest memories of her? Um, there are so many, Paul, you know, we just, we spent so much time together as a team sort of unified against our parents, um, or I think one of the interesting things about my sister, and I think this is really true for everyone who has siblings, but, um, we're the only people who knew what it was like, and for a variety of reasons, um, in our school, we were the only kids of South Asian descent. Like there were, there were no other Indian kids. So we were sort of unified on that front. At church, we were, I think still, the only um, South Asian kids in that community. In the Bangladeshi community, we were the only non-Muslim non or non-Hindu kids. So, you know, so circumstances sort of forced us to pair up and work as a team on so many fronts, you know. One of my favorite memories of her is we were really small and she wanted a toy radio that was in my hand and um, she wanted it so much that she decided she was gonna bite me on the ankle. So then I, I bonked her on the head with it. That is a very clear and distinct memory. But, but there are just tons of, you know, stories she would tell. She really, she was a very gifted storyteller, a very talented writer as well. Um, short stories, poems, things like that. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any of those. She destroyed pretty much everything on that front. But, um, but she had a, a gift for just telling story or making you want to listen to her. Here's, here's a really entertaining example about her. I don't know if you're familiar with Cutco Knives. It's, it's, it's not quite a pyramid marketing scheme, but it's sort of akin to that. 
And um, essentially what they do is they bring you in, they get you to buy a knife kit, and then you go out and you sell these knives. Now they actually happen to be very good knives. Um, she and I both went, went in, we were looking for a summer job because I saw it in the paper and she's like, oh, well, I'll go with you since you're going. I'm like, sure, no problem. And at the end of the four hour orientation session, I was like, this is definitely not the job for me. And she signed up to do it and ended up being the top seller in the Hampton Roads area, which is where we grew up for the next two years. You know, like she sold to friends, to friends of friends. And while you can get so far with, you know, well, your mom and my mom are friends and they'll listen to the presentation, they were pretty expensive knives and she sold everybody on them. It was really something impressive to watch. And, and this was post high school? Yeah, this was in college, I think. Um, and where did she go to college? She also went to William and Mary. So yeah, that was, <laughs> that was sort of interesting because for all that she was super outgoing and always a very rebellious soul, independent thinker, whatever you wanted to call it, um, she more often than not would sort of creep in behind me if she could. So as an example, she went to William & Mary. Um, when she graduated from William & Mary, she came to Northern Virginia and she moved in with me and my roommate at the time. And um, she never moved out of my house actually, so not until she was gone. So, And I used to tease her about it because I'm like, oh, well, you know, where's all that bravado now? And she's like, well, I don't need bravado. She's like, I've got a big sister. I'm like, fair enough. You know, that, that kind of ended that particular conversation, so. And what was your relationship like when she was your roommate? It was fine. Um, I am a person who is pretty good about drawing lines. Um, so, you know, and she knew my, my roommate who was my best friend in the whole world. Um, she knew her really well as just, you know, sort of coming up through college and then spending a fair amount of time with her. So we were all very clear. Your room is your space. The common area is everyone's space, you know, and um, you know, we had very clearly established rules about the things that make you nuts about your roommate. So we got along pretty well. And can you tell me about the circumstances of her death? Sure. So um, my sister committed suicide um, on her, it would have been her 34th birthday. So she was diagnosed with depression, oh, I think she was 14 maybe, um, treated with antidepressants and therapy uh, through her adolescence and her 20s. It is, we do have a family history of it, unfortunately. Although the truth is that in Bangladesh, certainly as I was growing up, but still to this day, there is a very strong stigma and a lack of understanding about mental illness that um, people simply didn't recognize what, you know, like I've seen it in my mother and my father and my aunts and uncles and was sufficiently educated to immediately recognize it as depression but they themselves were not as familiar with the concepts and so they didn't always understand. Um, our mother died when she was, I think she was 20, 
24, yeah, she was 24 and I was 27. And uh, that really shifted, I think, her, her illness to a place where it was rapidly becoming more that she would, was able to manage. And so um, sort of the year she was, uh, sort of her early 30s are marked by a fair amount of, I don't know what the right clinical terms are, but um, a lot of episodes of mania um, as well as depressive. She was never clinically diagnosed as um, bipolar or anything like that, but I think if she had been under a physician's care or psych you know, psychologist's care, then they probably would have diagnosed her that way, although I firmly believe that you should leave diagnosis to the professionals. So, um, And she had, um, she and I had had some very frank conversations, but um, so I don't want to say that it was a surprise that she chose to end her life, but I think that kind of thing, no matter how much you think that it may be coming, you are never really prepared for the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. So you weren't surprised? No, I really, I really wasn't. Um, I was surprised that, and I shouldn't have been in retrospect because it was the sort of dramatic gesture that she would deeply appreciate that she chose um, her birthday, but, but, it, but when I look back on things, it is very clear that that was what she was working towards. She was, um, she was as I said, throwing things away, she was getting rid of things, um, she was a teeny bit of a pack rat, which is something that she and I would argue about on the regular. Um, but, you know, just, you know, destroying a lot of things, giving away a lot of things. She made sure to see all of her friends um, in, the, in the weeks before, in some context or another. Um, she was a school teacher. She taught um, fifth grade for, gosh, I think it was 16 years, something like that. Um, and she was very close to the, the school, um, to the, the people on her team, and to a lot of people in her school. She had been at the same school, uh, the Costa Girls, we like longevity, right? So the, the school that she was hired at, um, she stayed there for her entire career. Um, you know, so as I say, it was, um, the writing was on the wall to a certain extent. That said, it was a complete and utter shock to my father and to most of my family. Because the, they had not quite recognized how depressed she was, or just be, because of the stigma that you mentioned? I think, I think for both reasons, right? Um, I, I, I love my family very much, but they have a very bad habit of sort of closing their eyes to the things that they don't want to see. You know, as I mentioned, you know, she'd had some of those manic episodes and they were significantly long in um, and frequent enough that they began to notice that even for Nancy, she was being a little bit over the top. And so, you know, they all noticed it, but they didn't really say anything to me. They were just like, oh, she's just, you know, she's just our crazy Nancy and she's just, you know, but, um, but I think you know, my father is sort of a different situation 
because he is a physician and versed in this sort of thing, but I think that it is a very difficult, I don't have any children myself, but I imagine it must be a very difficult thing as a parent to think that your child, no matter how old they are, um, could consider that as, a, as an option or um, think that that was the best thing to do. And feel free to decline to, to talk about this, but as I recall, the way she did it was fairly dramatic. I didn't realize it was on her birthday, but as I recall, the way that she committed suicide was fairly dramatic as well. Yes. Um, she had gone to a gun range several weeks beforehand and bought a handgun I guess I actually never saw the gun because the police recovered it um, and she left the she left the house probably around 3 30 or 4 o'clock I saw her the night before um, before I went to bed I you know yelled down the stairs I'm like I'm going to bed and she she came up and she was like um, she said something and I came down and I hugged her and I said well you know you're getting a year older or something to that effect. And then, um, and that was the last time I saw her. She, um, she drove her car to a, a very, it, it, we still have not figured out what the rationale was, but to like an office park. And um, she sat in the grassy area in the middle of an office park and she, she shot herself there. She had left a note in a plastic bag with her license. She was wearing a, a white dress. I, 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 I don't want to say that she staged it, but I think to a certain extent that she, she thought all the, about those things very carefully. Um, and then I think that some a maintenance worker in a nearby office building observed that she was lying there stationary and called the police. And the police notified me. I was already in the office. Um, it was probably about like 10 maybe so what were the initial days and weeks after her death like how, how did you get through those you know it's um they were hard right but but i think that i really spent a lot of that time focused on the people who needed me and uh So like for them, after I found out, I was in the office and um, the EVP, Brigitte Catronio, was very kind to me. I notified my best friend because she was on the note that she had left for the, that Nancy had left for the police and I didn't want Anne to find out from the police. So I went to her and told her myself. Um, it was in the summer. Anne is also in elementary school education and so she was off at the time. So I went to her and then I went to my cousin who was really close to Nancy who was, and she was six months, no, five months pregnant at the time. And so it was, I don't, for some reason it was very important to me to tell everybody in person. I don't, like I couldn't, I couldn't see telling people over the phone, although I think that might have been easier in some regard but at the time it simply didn't occur to me as a as a possibility um, so 
I went to her and she lives nearby. And then of course, um, we decided we were gonna go home and I told my father, the rest of the family. And so it was a lot of crying, screaming, wailing, distress in general. And so for the first couple of days, it was really like, okay, how do I keep everybody else together? You know, and planning a funeral and all those sort of making phone calls and it was nonstop wall to wall people in um, my aunt's house, which was sort of our base of operations. Um, you know, and so I didn't really have time to think, which was good because it gives you time to sort of process some of the things. And then um, I was probably home for about 10 days or so. Yeah, I think because she passed away on a Friday, we had the funeral the following Friday and I came back to Northern Virginia the, um, the after that weekend. And I was really worried about it because you know I shared a house with her and I was like, Am I going to be able to live in this house when she's not in it? Um, and thankfully, I found that I was able to do it. Um, I was really not so much the idea of living alone. I wasn't concerned about that, but just the idea of, you know, was I going to be able to live in a house with all those memories of her in it? Yeah. Um, but like, because my mother, after my mother passed, I could not go back into my parents' house. Like I was, I could go in for like, like half an hour, an hour, grab something, come out. But like, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep there. I couldn't stay there. It just was too hard. And so I was really worried that was going to happen with me. Um, and thankfully it didn't. But um, so I think that it was a lot of that processing was sort of reserved for later. But, but I do think that I was better equipped because as I said earlier, it wasn't as much of a surprise. You know, she and I had a conversation specifically about suicide in April of that year. And she asked me the question very clearly, you know, would, would it, not would it be okay, but sort of, you know, would you be all right? Would you be able to go on? And I told her the truth. I said, I don't want that for you, but, but I understand the decision too. And was your sense of where she was at, at that point, sort of in that contemplative phase, was it just because she was in so much pain? Yes, you know, like, like I was watching her live with this pain, you know, um, and it's hard to watch somebody you love suffer like that. And I, I urged her to go back into therapy, to get back on the medication. And she really was very insistent. She's very like my mother in this respect, that she wanted to live her life on her own terms and not sort of subject to the side effects um, that she was suffering with, with, the, with the medications and things like that. And I think that she felt that she had exhausted most of the options that were available at the time. I think um, the treatment of depression has seems to have um, advanced considerably in the last 
10 years. This, this August will actually be 10 years that she's gone. So, um, but, but that notion of wanting to live her life on her own terms is something that she gets straight out of my mother's playbook. My mother um, died of lung cancer and um, you know, she did the whole, and this was 18 years ago. So the treatment options were very limited, right? She had part of a lung removed, um, chemotherapy, radiation, um, and then when it resurfaced, she said, that's it. I gave it my best shot. I'm not going to try again. You're just going to have to let me go, like it or not. Um, and so that, that instant, she was like, I'm not going to carry an oxygen tank. I'm not going to keep on going through chemo. I'm not going to, you know, and I think Nancy sort of took that philosophy to heart. Um, they were very similar in and of themselves, but, um, but I think that she, that was a large part of my sister's decision as well. It's interesting. I mean, when you, you think of in our society, how much, and in medicine, how much focus is on that. He or she was a fighter and, you know, mm -hmm. did this and this and that. Um, we don't re really focus much on someone who just decides, you know, this is the way it's going to be. It sounds like there was a little, there was some of, of that in both your mom and your sister. It's really interesting that you say that, Paul, because I think my experience with other people who have lost somebody um, from suicide is that they very often become sort of that warrior against suicide or suicide prevention, I guess. Um, and that has not really been my experience. It, my, mine is a little bit more like what you were saying, that there, there is such a thing as a measure of the quality of life and, um, and that I do think that everyone's life is their own to decide. I, you know, teen, teenagers, are so, it's a different sort of issue, I think, but as, you know, when you're talking about somebody in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, um, I, I think it is really a very different conversation for people. Were there helpful ways that people reached out to you to, to talk about what had happened or to support you? I'm not sure that it was anything in particular, but I really understood after my mother died why it is that we have all these social conventions about writing letters and notes and talking to people, you know, even, even if you're just showing up kind of. Um, but I also, but I also understand that so many people struggle with, well, I don't know what to say. What if I make it worse? Um, but my experience is that anything is better than nothing, you know? So just the, the broad range of people who felt compelled to, to reach out and say something and to share a memory or just you know, say they were sorry, I guess. Um, I think that really, it just really drove that lesson home for me. You know, I think, I know we all worry about upsetting somebody who is already upset, but I think that if your alternative is to say nothing, you're always better off reaching out with something really small. You know, I think if you can avoid sort of trite phrases, that <laughs> that is always a good thing. But just saying, you know, I was, I was thinking about you and I just wanted you to know that, right? Like that's, 
it's a really powerful thing. And I think that default to saying nothing is is so common because uh, it it's is. so it's so hard to know what to say. You know, it's not yeah. not like we take classes on that in college or high school or. Um, did you discover any new coping skills or, or develop any new interests during that time in the weeks and months and maybe even years since Nancy's death? Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's coping skills exactly, but but one of the things that I understood after my sister passed away is that I was going to have to make a decision about what I was going to be to my family. You know, um, after, after my mother passed away, I think that Nancy and I both engaged in some fairly self-destructive behavior, right? Like nothing, and I'm, I'm not a person of extremes myself, but certainly making decisions and doing things that were not in the best interests of my health, um, emotional well-being, or any of those things. And in the meantime, my father was struggling with bouts of extreme depression. You know, like um, it was it was bad. And so, so I think that I, you know, when Nancy was gone, there was no question of. There was no one else to trade off with, right? So I was like, okay, it's me. And so I'm going to step up and do this or I'm gonna think about something else. Now, thankfully, what I decided was I was gonna step up and I was gonna be the first, the person that my family and my friends needed me to be. Um, I'm not sure that's a coping strategy, but I think that I'm, I'm the kind of person who does better with a, a definitive path forward if there's anybody from the Alliance leadership listening to this, they are laughing right now because they all know that that is always my approach, right? You know, okay, what are you going to do? How are you going to move forward? What is the next step, right? And so I think that, that that end to that period after my mother's passing where I was sort of like, well, you know, who cares? You know, you're only going to, you only live once and that kind of thing. It did, um, it really helped me get on a path to take better care of myself. So I think that that is, I think that is important. Um, I think it really helped me set my priorities too. Um, my family has always been the most important thing in my life, but it really, it really, really brought that home in, in a way. Was it hard to come back to work? I mean, how, how did you decide when to come back to work? Um... It was not hard to decide to come back to work. Um, so I think, I think, like I said, I think it was two weeks that I was gone. Um, and honestly, I, I wanted something else to think about. But, um, but, but the Alliance is my, it's an extension of my family too. And so it was nice to come back to them. Did, did Nancy's death change how you approach life it sounds like in terms of your your family and and being there for your family even more uh, changed in that way um, but were there other things that your approach to life changed 
or were changed, I should say? I think, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, really. I, I'm, I'm really not sure, like, how much of that is sort of Nancy and how much of it is me as a human being and how much of it, you know, is just sort of the way we change as we age. But, um, but, I, but I've definitely become a lot better about self-care, I guess. You know, like, I don't, I don't exercise, um, unless Kathy Kretchen's making us do planks during the board meeting or something like that. But, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a reasonable eater, I guess. But, um, but, but really this notion of taking time for yourself to think about what it is that you want and how you're going to move forward with that. Um, I am a little bit of a workaholic by nature. Um, I don't like to leave things unfinished, but it, I have also learned that you cannot do everything and you have to learn to live with that, right? So that you cannot fix every problem. I think that that is, that is something that I have learned early in my life, but was unwilling to accept, I think, until more recently. Um, but that all, all you can do is the best that you can do, and then you move on. I'm much better about taking vacations and really trying to turn off work at the end of the day, like really, really to find that divide between this is Sheila at home and this is Sheila at work. But because my life philosophy is sort of similar across both of those things, sometimes it really is easy to get a little bit lost in them. And then, you know, like this work from home pandemic situation that we're in, you know, is not helping. I think a lot of people, you know, it's creating a lot of those um, problems for people where they can't turn it off or they, and I think because I had already instituted that kind of, I don't want to say discipline, that's not really the right word, but that sort of mindset, um, I think that that has kept me a lot healthier over this past year than a lot of other people that I know. And do you think that her death uh, in any way has helped you get through the COVID pandemic? Is it that perspective that's that's helped you with it or, or are there other things beyond that? Well, I think, I think every grief, loss, setback, disappointment that we experience in our lives builds us, you know, makes us stronger and ready to be better about the next grief, loss, setback, disappointment, right? You know, that, that it's, that human beings, we learn, we learn by doing, and we can read all the books in the world, right? But if, but it's until we experience something that we, um, we really understand it and hopefully are able to process those lessons into changes in our lives or changes in other people, the way we interact with other people, things like that. Um, so I think that that grief um, and that loss and all of the things that came before it prepared me to cope with the pandemic in a different way than if I had not experienced those, definitely. And on the other hand, I 
I sometimes would amuse myself by thinking of what life um, in the pandemic would have been like if Nancy were here or if, or if my mother were here, because both of them, as I said, very social, outgoing people. And to imagine them, you know, locked in their houses um, is sort of amusing and sort of frightening, honestly. So I'm, I'm glad that neither one of them had to undergo this, uh, this difficult stage that we're all still struggling with. for people listening to this about sur- surviving loss of this magnitude doesn't happen to everyone, but it does happen. What would be your advice for someone who's going through something like you went through with losing Nancy? Well, I am a teeny tiny bit of a hypocrite, I will admit that, because what I always encourage people to do is uh, is to talk to someone, uh, a professional therapist, um, because I think that that is really helpful. I myself um, did not, but I think that I was in a slightly different place. And I, and I was talking to other people about it. But I think the, particularly when um, friends and family die by suicide, I think that there is a, a particular cloud over that that makes it very difficult for people to reach out um, or to to know what to say, you know, even, you know, because because of the the action, I guess, that's in it, you know, that is a another person's choice to have done that. Whereas in the case of an illness or an accident, people attribute it to God, fate, being in the wrong place at the wrong time kind of thing, the un- uncontrollable nature of it versus, versus um, someone who dies by suicide, which uh, it involves a very clear element of choice. And I think that that really complicates people's feelings about it um, in, in a way that makes it very difficult for the people who are left behind to know how to feel about it but also for the people who want to support those who are left behind to know how best to help those people. And, and do you feel like, you know, because you brought up a, a couple of things early on that, you know, there, there's just in our society a, a stigma about suicide. And then you mentioned that your background was Catholic and, then, and that there's a cultural issue as well. How is your... How's your dad doing with her death 10 years on now? He still really struggles with it. He also is no longer practicing Catholic. He, he sort of turned his back on, he was very religious growing up. Um, and he was very religious when I was growing up, you know, I was a church on Sunday, you know, every, every week kind of girl. But, um, when my mother passed, he, he really sort of turned his back on the, the the institution of the church and didn't find solace in that. But the interesting thing is that when my sister died, he he sort of returned to the church and he was looking for he was looking for I think 
a construct or a reason, you know? Um, and so, you know, he's sort of in and out after that 10 years later, but, but right afterwards, he, he went back. I myself went back to church on the regular, mostly because I was looking for continuity, I think, and sort of the comfort of the familiar. I, I can't think of any other reason why I did it, but I, you know, I became a more or less regular churchgoer for about eight months after my sister passed. And then one Sunday I woke up and I was like, I don't need it. And I, I walked away from it. But from a, a cultural perspective, I think it is harder because so many of his friends um, who were also from Bangladesh, also physicians, didn't know what to say or do to help him. And and I think that that is true regardless of what culture you're in, right? When, yeah, you know, like your your kids are your kids and, and we're, we're a very family-oriented community. And so her loss impacted all of them. I think that they, to a certain extent, sort of blamed themselves. They were like, well, we should have checked in with her. We should have looked out with, looked out for her. And so they, they turned that inward, but they also couldn't find the outward expression to provide to my father. And so, um, so I encouraged him to talk to me about it. Um, and we still do, um, you know, one, one of the things that she had discussed with my father, she was, my sister was not a very good money manager, unfortunately, and she had incurred a fair amount of credit card debt and she had um, finally decided that she wanted to pay off this debt as part of this planning process, right? Um, because she was worried that I was gonna get stuck with it or that my dad was gonna get stuck with it. And so she had borrowed money to pay off the credit, she borrowed money from my father to pay off the credit card debt. And of course, you know, my father is a very financially um, responsible sort of person. And so there were a tremendous number of fights about that, about how could you run up all this debt and blah, blah, blah. He gave her the money, but you know, he also gave her the lecture to go with it, um, which is sort of par for the course with my dad, but, and most dads probably. You know, so he, would, he kept going back to, well, should I have, should I have handled that differently? You know, should I have, should I have come around more? Should I have made her see a doctor, you know, like, I think, I think that's what we all do. We sort of review our actions and try and figure out, well, what, how could we have changed the outcomes? And I think one of the things that I said to my father, to all of my sister's friends, to all of our family, because her friends who could see that she was troubled were all nonetheless incredibly shaken up and, um, greatly distressed by this whole thing you know I mean there was there was a tremendous amount of trauma for her friends um, but the but the thing that I have emphasized to everyone over and over again is that there isn't anything else that you could have done she knew that we loved her and she made that choice anyway it doesn't it doesn't have to do with you know she didn't love us enough like that that I think unfortunately is too often people's idea about well if they if they had loved me they wouldn't have done this to me you know but what I what I often said to people is that she 
it was just a burden that she couldn't carry anymore. You know, it was, it was a burden that she had since she was 14, right? And then complicated by my mother's passing and some things just don't get better. Um, and she just, she made her decisions that way. So Sheila, any other final thoughts for our listeners? I don't know. I, I don't feel that I've been particularly helpful. Um, I, I think, you know, a person's experience is always interesting, right? But I don't, I don't know how to generalize the, um, my experience to be helpful to somebody else. Um, but I don't, I don't know that I, I have any advice only, you know, to, you know, I, I do my very best to live my life in a way that at the end of the day, every day, um, I can say, did I do my best? Did the people that I love know that I love them? Did I do the right thing so that when that day comes that we all face, you know, one way or another, that I can walk away, you know, in, in a manner of speaking, um, knowing that I did what I could, you know? So I'm not, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a, vague yet inspirational message, I suppose. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not very good at giving that sort of advice, I'm afraid. Well, I think just coming here a la, via Zoom and talking about your sister today, I, th I think that's, that's the, the help or take home people will get from listening to this, I think. Well, if even one person finds it helpful, then, um, then I'm pleased. Sheila, thank you so much for talking with me about your sister Nancy. Been an amazing colleague uh, for the last 19 years that I've I've been associated with the organization and a, and a great friend too. Well, Paul, I um, I say it all the time. You don't stay anywhere. 23, 23 years and eight months <laughs> if you don't really love it. And what I love is the staff and the people that I work with, uh, the members, uh, the leaders, it's, it's afforded me, the Alliance afforded me opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. And they've been extremely personally kind to me to boot. So um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this really awesome podcast series. Like um, I'm not really a big podcast person, but I've listened to all of yours and I find them really interesting, so. <laughs> The song leading into this podcast was called Blame It On My Youth, performed by the Brad Meldow Trio. And as you exit this podcast, you're hearing the Milk Carton Kids playing Wish You Were Here, a song originally written and performed by Pink Floyd. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone, and have a great day.
goes for goals I'm anxious for trees Hot air for a cool breeze Cold comfort for change Did you exchange A walk on part in the war For lead role in the cage Okay. Mm-hmm.